so we are, this is our first Sunday of Advent, <clears throat> December 1st, hard to believe it's December 1st, uh, and so uh, this next few weeks, uh, all of December actually, uh, we will be looking at passages from Matthew chapters 1 uh, and 2 and using that as kind of the framework uh, that uh, we'll be meditating on uh, to prepare uh, for the second coming of Christ. Um, let me pray, let's get started. Father, I thank you for your word, uh, Lord, that you didn't leave us in the dark about who we are, uh, who you are, more importantly, and, uh, or about our world. Uh, you also didn't leave us in the dark about history, uh, Lord, that you created the world, uh, Lord, that, you, that we sinned against you, Lord, that you uh, have raised up a people uh, to be a light to the world, that you promised them that the world would be made right again, and you sent your son, Jesus, and... Uh, and Lord, now we wait for his second coming, uh, where there will be no more tears. And Lord, we know you count our tears in the meantime. Lord, we know you count our tossings in the night. And, uh, and one day we will no longer toss, we will no longer cry, uh, because you will be among us. And uh, Lord, we long for that day and this day. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, one of the fundamental questions I think that we all ask is the question, uh, who am I? It's an identity question. It's what uh, people from all ages uh, have been asking this question. And in the modern West, we really uh, answer this question very individualistically, don't we? Uh, we begin to build a resume. We begin to put wh- where we went to school, our education, or lack thereof. We begin uh, to put on there our accomplishments. We begin to put on there the jobs we've had. We begin to put on there uh, how much money we have or don't have. And when you think about these individualistic resumes, it either makes you feel really good about yourself or it makes you feel a lot of shame. It's an individualistic way of thinking about who we are as people. But this isn't the way it is around the world. You know that, don't you? There's also a corporate way in which to imagine who you are, a corporate way to imagine your identity. This way, in the ancients, everyone saw it, and this is the way that some people in our world see it. And they began to see the world and who they are more corporately. They began to answer that question, who am I, by identifying with their ethnicity, with their nationality, and particularly with their family. And so when two of the four gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, want to answer the question, who is Jesus? They want to connect Jesus to who his family is, so they include an extensive genealogy in their gospel accounts. They're trying to say, if you want to know who Jesus is, look at his family tree. So let's look at it together, Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab. And Abinadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. 
And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiah the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. I think in this genealogy, Matthew is trying to identify at least three kinds of people for us. He's trying to address insignificant people in order to show them that they are significant. He's trying to find the nobodies out in the crowd who are reading his gospel. Then he's trying to find the honored people who have been brought low by suffering. And the honored people, he's trying to find the somebodies. So he finds the nobodies and the somebodies. And then he finds the lowly people. And he wants to show the lowly people how they can be honored. So let's look at each group. The insignificant, the honored, and the lowly. So let's start with the insignificant. Um, let's be honest, when I was reading that, you really wanted to doze out if you didn't. Uh, if you did doze out, you were probably thinking, uh, what, what am I going to do after this? You're probably thinking, uh, what, I, I'd like something to eat. Marshall started talking about green things, and I started thinking about not green things. I started thinking about how hungry I was. I'd like to eat instead of read this genealogy. I get it. And a few of these people that you see here in Matthew chapter 1, they're only listed here. That's why it's easy to doze out. It's not just that it's genealogy. It's that you don't know who any of these people are. And I don't either. Nobody does. Azor, this is the only time Azor is mentioned. Same is true for Mathon. Same is true for Eliad. We have no idea what they're like. Then there's some people who are only mentioned one other place in the Bible and almost uh, with no significance. That's Obed, that's Shealtiel, and that's Joseph. Joseph, you know, the one who is the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't know hardly anything about him. And I think the reason that Matthew includes them is to show those of us who are fully convinced that we're insignificant, that we're not alone. See, those of us who know we're insignificant, we know that our great-grandkids will not even know our names let alone our accomplishments. I mean, that's true of me. I I don't know who who any of my great-grandparents' names were. I knew one of them, but I just called her great-grandma Bruce. And on my mom's side, uh, they're all from Muhlenberg County, and then you have Shelva and Mary Bruce. 
you've got Alma and Nora, or Alma and Ora Nofsinger. Then my dad's side, they're from Erlanger, Northern Kentucky. Their names were Leonard and Alma Wimhoff. Then you had Charles and Lida Hood. Now, only one of those I'd ever met, and I didn't know her name. I had to call my mom and ask her for her name. I didn't know my great-grandparents, none of their names by memory. And it made me think, will my great-grandkids remember me in 50 or 100 years? I mean, sure, they might not know who I am, but will they even know my name? Will they know what my life was about? The answer is probably not. And the reason is that I'm probably not going to accomplish anything all that noteworthy. It's kind of depressing, isn't it? Now, sure, there is something about the desire to be significant that's equivalent to sinful pride. But there is something about the desire to be significant that's, being, that's part of being made in the image of God. See, we were hardwired by God to be admired We're hardwired by God to be admired in the same way that kids long to be admired by their parents. Lately, at my house, we have a three-year-old, Brooks, and he keeps saying, Daddy, watch me. Daddy, watch me. Daddy, watch me. And I watch him, and he's trying to show me a dance move. And his dance move is he gets on all fours, and he lifts one leg into the air. (laughs) He calls it a dance move, but it looks like a urinating dog to me. He's really, he's really not trying to get me to laugh. What he's trying to do is he's trying to get me to say, that's awesome, buddy. You've got some great dance moves. And I know it sounds silly, but how silly do we look our whole lives long trying to get God's attention when we already have it? How silly are we for trying to get the praise of men when we know that's going to leave us empty. Because we're hardwired, yes, to be significant, to be admired, but not by people. We're hardwired to be found significant by God. Somehow we think that we need our spouse not to just love us, but our spouse needs to give us a sense of meaning. Somehow we need our kids not to just respect us, but we need them to give us a sense of worth. Somehow we think that if we post on social media, if we get enough likes, it's going to give us a sense of significance. But if we're really honest, we know it doesn't work. But what does work is when we're admired by God. Because he admires us not for our accomplishments. He admires us because we're connected to his beloved son. See, we're a lot like Azor. We're a lot like Eliad. And we are the Azors and the Eliads of this generation. And the only way we get significant is if we're connected to Jesus. Man, I started thinking about what, what were Azor and Eliad really like? I think they were just normal dudes. Just normal dudes, just like me and you. They cooked food, they went to work. They didn't always love their jobs. They probably had kids and they worried about them. They were probably scared to death of death. Normal. Doesn't that sound like me and you? 
See, what Jesus does is he comes to us, our insignificant, and he says, if you will connect to me, then I can make you significant. Begs the question, doesn't it? Are you connected to Jesus? If not, you need to know that you don't have to do anything significant in order to get his attention. You already have it. And then you connect yourself to him. And you join a long line of Azores and Eliots. So you see insignificant folk in Jesus' family tree. But you also see some Hall of Famers. You also see some somebodies. It starts out with the heavy hitters right there, doesn't it? At the beginning. You see Abraham. You see David. You see Jacob. And I looked up this week and found out that Abraham's name is mentioned in the Bible 234 times. David is found, his name is found in the Bible 989 times. Jacob's found 221. So in a lot of ways, these three guys are the who's who of the Bible. Think about it. There's a reason why they are. I mean, Abraham's the who's who in the Bible because he's the spiritual father of us all. All of us can trace our lineage spiritually all the way back to Abraham. Then you've got David. Well, David's the one guy you want on your resume. He's the man who said that God made after his own heart. He's super successful. The kingdom of Israel reaches height under his rule. You got Jacob. If you really look at Jacob closely, you'll see that no one could close a deal better than Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and in a patriarchal society, having 12 sons was better than having massive amounts of wealth in our society. So they're accomplished. But for all their apparent accomplishments in the history of God's redemption, they have these noticeable blemishes. Take Abraham. Abraham didn't believe God. He laughed at God. Abraham prostituted his wife out not once, but twice in order to save his own neck. Then you've got David. Well, David commits adultery. David commits murder, and Matthew wants to make sure you remember. That's why in verse 6 he says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon. Could have put a comma there, but do you see what, what he does in verse 6? He doesn't put a comma after Solomon. He includes the detail of by the wife of Uriah. Well, Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. That was the woman that David committed adultery with, and Uriah was the one that David murdered. Noticeable blemish. Then you've got Jacob. Jacob was a stealer. Jacob was the younger of two sons. His older brother was Esau. Esau was in line to get the, the, the majority of the inheritance. He didn't get the majority of the inheritance. Esau didn't because Jacob stole from him. Jacob took his inheritance, goes off, finds someone to connect with named Laban. And he marries both of Laban's daughters. And then he steals a lot of Laban's property. He's a stealer. But each of these supposed honored biblical heroes, sure, they're honored because of their accomplishments. Sure, they've got these noticeable blemishes. But the other thing they all have in common is that they were all humbled by God. Think about Abraham. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his most precious earthly treasure, his son Isaac. 
Abraham agreed. And Abraham was never the same after that. He finally had some humility about him. David, after David's adultery, after his committing a murder, he's confronted by a prophet, he's confronted by Nathan about all of this. And that confrontation brings him to repentance and he pens the prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. And because of this confrontation with Nathan, David was different forever. Then you've got Jacob. Jacob's got this, his character is ingrained with being this stealer, this little grabber. But finally God finds him in the middle of the night and wrestles with him to the point that he knocks Jacob's hip out of place. And Jacob can't ever quite walk right again. Every step he took, he was reminded of God's painful grace to him. He was humbled. So you see, even the significant, even the honorable in Jesus' lineage, they're brought low. And that's exactly what they needed. And that's what all accomplished, honorable people need. More than anything else, what they need is a strong dose of humility. Now, it's okay to be accomplished. It's okay to be talented. And in some ways, Abraham, David, and Jacob, they can blame God for being so talented. Because he's the one who's behind all their accomplishments. But each of them, their pride got the best of them. And so God had to bring them low. Well, maybe for some of us, we need God to do us a favor. We need him to bring us low this Advent season. We need to taste the bitterness of our sin. We need to receive God's fatherly discipline so that our accolades don't fool us to think that we're connected to Jesus because we are so special. See, God's fatherly discipline, it's a gift to us. Because it's his discipline that convinces us that our connection with Jesus is based on his sovereign, gracious choice as opposed to our accomplishments. And it's because of this discipline that helps us see that we have far more in common with Azor than we would like to admit. So you see in Jesus' genealogy, we, we, we do see that the insignificant become significant. We see that the hum, that the honored are brought low, but then we see that the lowly are honored. You probably, if you've been around the church very long, you probably picked up that there were some women in Jesus' genealogy. Look look there, verse 3, you see Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. You see Ruth in verse 5. You see Bathsheba in verse 6. And then you see Mary all the way down in verse 16. It really is extraordinary that Matthew would include any women in his genealogy. No one would include women in their genealogy in the first century because women didn't have any legal rights, not just in Israel, but across the Middle East. Usually, if you had a genealogy, you only included men because men were more valued than women. But there's more going on here than just the inclusion of women. There's also the inclusion of non-Jews or Gentiles into this genealogy. See, Rahab, she was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Now, if you're Jewish, not only do you not include women in your genealogy, 
you also don't include non-Jews in your genealogy. It was kind of code in your genealogy to not include people that you weren't proud of because, again, you're trying to build your identity by who you came from. And for Jews, it was very important for them to be, appear as religiously pure. The more Jews in your family line, the more pure you are. So you just leave them out. But Matthew doesn't leave them out here. So yeah, there's women in here. There's non-Israelite women. That's all out of the ordinary. But what makes this so surprising is the reputation of each of these women who are included. Tamar. Tamar was Tamar seduced her father-in-law and then had his babies. Rahab was a prostitute. Boaz made significant sexual advances towards Boaz. Bathsheba was used by a powerful man because she was sexually pleasing to him. And then you've got Mary. And Mary became pregnant when she wasn't married. So you can imagine what people thought of her when she swore up and down, God's the one who made me pregnant. And you know what everybody thought. Sure. What about that cute guy you've been hanging out with named Joseph? So it's scandalous. These were the lowest of low. They weren't male, they weren't Jewish, and they certainly weren't righteous. You would be hard-pressed to find a group of people who are more unlikely to be found in Jesus' lineage than these women. So why did Matthew do it? Why did he include them? He didn't have to. I think it's because that Matthew spent a lot of time with Jesus and he knew that Jesus was proud to have come from them. He knew that what Jesus specialized in was to make insiders out of outsiders. He knew what Jesus specialized in was making, taking a hall of shame and making it a hall of fame. So zoom out. Zoom out here. Look at all these names here. You see the insignificant ones. You see the famous ones. You see the lowly ones. You begin to realize it doesn't really matter what you've done. It really doesn't matter where you came from. All that matters is whether or not you're connected to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can give you an identity that will last He's the one who came, he died, he rose again to include you on the list of names that comes after verse 16. Because you know Jesus' family tree keeps going, don't you? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is with some of his followers, some of his disciples, not just the 12 disciples, but a larger crowd of disciples. He's with them. He's also got his brothers and his mother with him. And Jesus says this in chapter 12 in front of both his disciples and his blood family. Here's what he says. He says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I want you to imagine that you're Mary or one of his brothers at that moment. You know you're thinking, Hey, we knew Jesus was a bit odd. But now he's out of his mind. 
He's saying that these people are his family when we're the ones who share DNA with him. But Jesus is trying to get them to see that he's talking about his spiritual lineage. And I think Jesus looks at these people over here, his blood relatives, and he begins to put his hand around the most important person in the room that has blown it. The Abraham in the room, the David in the room, the Jacob in the room. And he points to Mary and his brothers and said, this one's in my family. He puts his arm around a woman. He puts his arm around a non-Jew. He puts his arm around someone with a sordid sexual past. And he looks at his mother, he looks at his brother, and he says, this one's in my family. And then he finds someone that no one even knows their name in the room, and he says, this one's in my family. And when you begin to look at Jesus' family tree that comes after him, you see the same kinds of people that you saw in verses 1 to 15. You see insignificant ones. You see those who had been humbled, and you see those who were lowly. And I think if Jesus were with us today, he'd take us on a walk, and he'd, we'd be standing over here like Mary and his brothers, and he'd have a lesson to teach us. He'd be putting his arm around all those kinds of people, and I think he'd leave it up to us and say, have you drawn a different criteria than I have of what my kingdom's like? See, we should stand in awe of who Jesus chooses to be related to. We should be surprised. And until you're surprised that Jesus has chosen you, either because of your insignificance, or because how you've been brought low, or because of your gender, or because of your ethnicity, or because of your morality, you will never really understand Christmas. But if you are surprised that you're part of God's family, then you will understand Christmas. And you will see the opportunity that Christmas provides for you to reenact the shocking nature of his family. And you could put your arms around all those different kind of people too. Let's pray together. Father, bring us to a place where we're surprised that we're in. Or that we see that we, there's no righteousness of our own that we bring, but it's your righteousness to which that we cling. We pray these things in your name. Amen.